Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Global News reporter, former Chief of Defense Staff General Jonathan Vance, is facing allegations of inappropriate behavior with female subordinates. We know former military ombudsman Gary Walborn testified before the Parliamentary Defense Committee that he brought evidence of the allegations to the Minister of National Defense, Arjit Sajjan, in 2018, but that Mr. Sajjan refused to look at the evidence. Walborn told the committee, here's the quote, I did tell the minister what the allegation was. I reached into my pocket to show him the evidence I was holding. He pushed back from the table and said no. Meanwhile, Minister Sajjan testified before the Defense Committee that he followed all proper procedures when reports of military sexual misconduct were brought to him, but refused to disclose what the ombudsman actually told him. Mr. Sajjan claimed confidentiality. Meanwhile, General Vance insists he did not act inappropriately. And yesterday, Justin Trudeau says he retains confidence in his Minister of Defense and continues to claim he knew nothing about the case at all until Global News broke the story last month. We're joined by uh, James Bazan. He's the uh, Conservative Party of Canada defense critic. Mr. Bazan, thank you very much for the time out of the gate. Do I have all of this correctly? Yeah, you do. It's uh, spot on. So, do you, first of all, do you believe Justin Trudeau when he insists he knew nothing of the situation until last month, considering this meeting between Mr. Walburn and Sajjan happened three years ago? There's no way that Justin Trudeau wasn't briefed about what happened uh, in 2018. Uh, so his claims and question period, you know, I asked him last week if he had any um, recollection of, of when he found out about this uh, allegations of sexual misconduct against General Vance. And he said, I just learned when it goes on, on, came to light in the news uh, and the great reporting coming from Global. Now, the, we know that Justin Trudeau and Hartford Sajan have been involved in very much uh, deceptive operations in the past and refused to be transparent with Canadians. But this now is, is impacting upon the women and men who serve this country in uniform. They deserve the best. And what we have right now is a cover-up at the highest levels. And as we saw in news reports, even this morning, and you know memos and briefing notes that are coming to light because of ATEPs and investigative journalism, that you know, brief notes were, were written up to, you know, within the PCO and the Minister of National Defense Office. There was memos going back and forth, emails and briefing notes, and they had to be going all the way up to the top. Uh, we know it goes right to one of the PMO top advisors, uh, Earl Marquis, uh, and, and that he is now also uh, uh, going to be, you know, we're going to need to hear from him at committee. But that that means that issues management was involved. They were, there would have been a briefing to the prime minister, and I'm sure that Minister Sage would have sat down with the prime minister saying, "Okay, we got a problem here with our chief of defense staff." But let, they, let me just let me just let me just say this to you: Global News was reporting today that one day after the former military ombudsman Gary Wellborn 
quote, brought an allegation of inappropriate behavior by General Jonathan Vance to Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan. Someone emailed the Privy Council office about the need to put some things in writing, end quote. Within hours, staff from Sajjan's office had drafted a letter to Mr. Walborn, emphasizing that the minister knew nothing about the detail of the allegations, which Mr. Walborn said before the House of Commons Defense Committee, which you remember, on Wednesday, that Sajjan had refused to look at. So let me, let me quote again the Global News story a little further, uh, content from the letter. Quote, on behalf of the minister, I'm writing further to your discussion concerning allegations of sexual harassment that have been brought to your attention. Although the substance and details of the allegations were not discussed, the minister, we, want to ensure that they are properly investigated, end quote. The letter continues before, in this, in this matter, before asking Walburn to share the details of the complaint with the Privy Council office. I'm confused. You're not the only one. <laughs> and we had Gary Walburn and the minister at committee. And I can tell you that what we've heard from expert witnesses and what we're seeing in, in news reporting is that the minister had a responsibility to act. Now, although Gary Walburn had to keep confidentiality on behalf of the victim, and she requested that, what Gary was, was, was had to do was, was come to the minister, who he reported to, and ask for guidance. And he got nothing. You know, Minister Sajan talks about having zero tolerance, but we're getting zero action. And so instead of you know, providing details on saying, yes, I'm going to talk to the uh, CDS, I'm going to have General Vance step aside so that we can start uh, a, a full independent investigation, unobstructed from, from any interference from the chain of command. But instead, he, he, he pushed himself away from the table and refused to look at the evidence. He could have done a board of inquiry under Section 45 of the National Defense Act. You know, he could have appointed a supernumerary uh, justice to take over the case. There's all sorts of avenues he had. PCO is not an investigative body, and he keeps saying that's the proper authorities. And maybe he went up his chain of command, Mr. Sajan, probably talked to Justin Trudeau. And, and with all the documentation that is coming to light now, there is no doubt in my mind and in the minds of Canadians that Justin Justin Trudeau know about this three years ago, and not only did they leave the chief of defense staff in place and allowed who knows what else to happen to women in the in the military, and leave this poor person um, suffer in silence for the last three years, but we also know that you know he 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 gave General Vance a big raise. So yeah, you know, where's the performance review and all this? Where's the eth ethics? And again, there, there's no accountability here, and we really well, need better for the brave men and women who serve our I, I'm speaking with James Bazan, Conservative Member of Parliament, defense critic for the party. If the Prime Minister of Canada is unaware of a situation that is so significantly serious that it involved uh, satellites of the minister's office, then there's something seriously wrong. If he doesn't know for, for, for three years, if he's unaware, that's a real real concern. Now, Liberal MPs, as you well know, being on the committee, are insisting Mr. Walborn should have initiated an investigation, and they've challenged the former military ombudsman on that. And Mr. Walborn, and now you just said this, told the committee the complainants did not want to be publicly identified, did not authorize the former ombudsman to begin a formal investigation into the allegations. Are, in your view, give me a short answer here, are the liberals, in your view, actively engaging in covering up inappropriate sexual misconduct complaints by a female member of the CAF? Well, 
you know, as disappointed I am in, in, in our military commanders and General Vance and Admiral McDonald who are caught in these, these uh, sexual misconduct investigations, I'm just as disappointed in liberal members and the prime minister for not doing the right thing. And instead of uh, getting to the bottom of this to ensure that there's accountability, let, let's fix the system so that there is transparency and independence so women can feel free to come forward with, with their uh, complaints about sexual misconduct in, in the armed forces. Uh, and yet we, we have them trying to discredit one of the best public servants that I've ever had the honor of meeting uh, in, in government. And, you know, Gary Walborn, you know, has served this country as, as military ombudsman, as, as the deputy uh, ombudsman for Veterans Affairs. He worked in Transport County, worked in the Department of National Defense. He had, had, had so much respect that when he gave his last testimony at the Veterans Affairs Committee in 2018, all members stood up and gave him a standing ovation all right. from all parties. Mr. Brazan, I, I, I get it. Now is, is disgusting. I get it. To be the ombudsman of the military, you're going to be somebody with some significantly demonstrated character. Now, conservative members of the Defense Committee want the scope of the investigation to be expanded. You're asking for an emergency meeting on Monday. Has, tell us about what it is you want, and has has, the, has your, your priorities changed at all uh, based on what's happened in the last 24, 48 hours? It certainly has changed. I think we've got more evidence now. Uh, we're, we're going to have to probably look at getting uh, more uh, of, of these papers, memos uh, that had been floating around back in 2018, and who knows for how long, uh, from the PMO, from the PCO, from, from the Department of National Defense. We definitely need to hear from the minister again. We need to hear from um, you know former chiefs of staff and, 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 and former staffers in the PMO who have been implicated uh, and, and reported upon now. We, we need uh, like Michael Warnick to come forward, uh, uh, who was the clerk of the Privy Council at that point in time. So, you know, there, there, we've, you know, extended both, uh, you know, invitations to, to Michael Warnick and to uh, Zita Astravas. And, you know, they need to, to, to appear so we can hear uh, what they did with the information that Minister Sajan or, or whoever it was that started sending emails up to the Privy Council office the very next day on, on, on in March of 2018, after the conversation between Gary Walborn and Minister Sajan. So, you know, there, there, we also need to expand the scope of the study. Right now, it's only about General Vance, but of course, in, since we started this, this investigation from, from parliamentary uh, purview, we also have the allegations against Admiral uh, Art McDonald. And so we need to also include that and, and see the comparison of how he was he stepped aside after again when when it was becoming public news that uh, right. he was making sexual allegations uh, versus uh, how the cover up happened with General Vance. Okay, I have so, about I have about thirty seconds here. Do you believe, uh, as the critic for the Conservative Party of Canada, uh, do you believe that the Prime Minister of Canada is orchestrating and dem- and, and and directing a cover up? Yes, I do. Uh, Justin Trudeau is, is being complicit here, and unfortunately, he's re-victimizing uh, the women in the Canadian Armed Forces who have faced sexual misconduct because he is not standing up for them. Colonel Michel Dafoe, he was a colonel for he was in the Canadian military for more than 30 years, and uh, an Ottawa-based lawyer now dealing with current and former military clients challenging the CAF. It's a Michel Drapeau Law Office, or M-D-L-O dot C-A. Colonel Drapeau, it's been a long time since we last spoke. Thank you very much.
for joining us. And how do you view what's taken place at the most senior positions in the Canadian military? With much dismay uh, and uh, not so much as to what happened, which is deplorable, but uh, the, the inaction uh, and, uh, and the fact that uh, uh, senior of- officials were made aware back in uh, 2018 uh, there were allegations being made against, uh, against the then Chief of Defense Staff. And uh, so both the, the highest level in the Defense Department and the Privy Council Office, which is the, uh, the ministry uh, which, uh, which uh, uh, serves the Prime Minister, being aware of it and uh, little, if anything, was done with it. Uh, little, if anything, I mean, in a way of investigation, in a way of of asking um, uh, General Vance, basically, what, he, or even informing him. We don't even know if he was informed that allegation would be made against him, and find his uh, his side of the story. So it's uh, it, it doesn't look good upon the forces. Doesn't look good upon the Defense Department. Doesn't look good upon the Canadian government as a as organizations that are ready and willing to receive allegations, to investigate them, and to make sure, in fact, that corrective action is taken immediately. I mean, this is what we expect of these organizations, if for no other reason to make uh, women who are serving in the armed forces, now or then, uh, secure the knowledge that uh, they can serve with dignity, with safety, if anything happens to them, if they report it to the authorities, then something will be done uh, and will be done without delay and without question. Clearly, uh, Colonel Drapo, this current situation cannot be tolerated. So what must replace it? Well, uh, there is a total lack of external uh, oversight of the military. It just, it just simply is not, which in a democracy is dangerous because the military which is a state within the state in several respects. It's got its own military police, its own tribunals, its own everything that you could care to have. They have their own postal service, their own medical system, their own dental system, their own batteries. It's a state within the state. And in order to make sure that we have civilian control over that, we need to have oversight. Oversight is provided by parliament and parliamentary uh, entities. It, at, in the case of D&D, we don't have it. In the case of the general Canadian uh, society, we have it. We have an auditor general. We have official languages commission. We have a privacy commissioner. We have an integrity officer and so on. All of these are officers reporting to Parliament that ensure, in fact, oversight upon the federal bureaucracy. In D&D, there is none. There should be. And in many, many countries, Australia, the United States, Germany, Holland, and I can go on and on, they have an organization called Inspector General of the Armed Forces. That person, in fact, is a civilian. He reports to Parliament, and if any allegations or any issue of concern or a review of the military justice system or grievances, this officer of Parliament gets involved. He has the power to investigate, the power, in fact, to visit and to inspect and to and to uh, interview individuals and to report and take action. Until this gets done, um, the situation won't change. Whether we called it an inspector general or something else, we need to have this kind of oversight so the parliamentary committee can be informed. At the moment, the only person that are informing the parliamentary committees is both the CDS and the Deputy Minister of National Defense. <clears throat> These individuals have got, obviously, a parti pris. 
they have a bias, and their bias is they report to the minister, and they are loyal to the minister and, and uh, the defense department. All right. So they cannot come to parliament and tell them what's going on inside and what's wrong and so on and so forth. Okay. So until we get this done, we'll be in the same jam that we are at the moment. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The Kiel Burger Brothers and We Charity back in the headlines. This time it's uh, award-winning American journalist Reed Cowan who's stepping forward with accusations. But that's not all, according to my guest, uh, Charlie Angus, who tweets uh, at Charlie Angus NDP. The Kiel Burger Brothers say they will defy a legal summons from Parliament. Their group states that We Leadership will also defy the summons. And Charlie... How much work has been going on in the background as far as the ethics committee is concerned? And where are we now? When we look at Mr. Cowan's uh, presentation, testimony, before the committee, and and, and now the, the Kielberger brothers being summoned before the committee, they're not going to do it. What's been going on to get us to this point? Well, Roy, we're facing an extraordinary situation uh, with the Kielberger brothers not only saying they're going to uh, refuse to show up to testify on Monday, but that if we send them a legal summons, they will ignore that as well. Uh, this will plunge us into unprecedented uh, territory in terms of how we actually deal with this. And we're dealing with a group that are supposed to be an international charity and inspiring young kids in schools across North America. So the question is, how did we get here? Well, we know that uh, the scandal over the we uh, the government's plan to give 912 million dollars to the we group um, raised a lot of questions because of their close connections to the trudeau family then we found out they were hiring members of the trudeau family they were hiring members of bill morneau's family uh the prime minister shut down our work in the hearings in the summer your listeners will remember that then we got back the prime minister then threatened an election over us trying to strike a committee uh, to actually deal with all these issues. The Ethics Committee tried to take up the the WE charity study to finish it because we have an obligation to Parliament. We went through Liberal filibustering for the equivalent of 20 meetings, which brought us into November. And finally, uh, we all compromised and said, okay, let's just get this thing done. For a few more meetings, we'll take all the testimony, we'll present it to Parliament. And one of those meetings was to be with the Kielberger brothers uh, on Monday. And now they're saying they're not coming and they're saying uh, that they will defy a legal injunction. And I think that that's, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't even know what to say to them. So we've never been in this territory before then? Well, there have been a few cases of hostile witnesses who refused to testify. But again, we're talking about uh, two brothers who were pretty much made goodwill ambassadors by Justin Trudeau. Uh, they represented us at the UN. They set up that Canada 150 days. Um, they've been in every school in the country promoting their uh, feel-good volunteerism. You know, my daughters were involved when they were young. They were really inspired by Craig Kielberger, and yet they're saying, no, we're not going to testify. So what is it that they are refusing to testify about? I think, Roy, 
This past week, we heard devastating testimony from a top We American donor, Mr. Reed Cowan, who's also an advisor on their board of directors. He's calling for police investigation, IRS, CRA investigation. Then Bloomberg came out with a a devastating investigation this week about uh, donor manipulation and serious questions about how this group operates in Africa. So this was their opportunity. Come, come before the cameras and respond. Reassure your donors. That's what you do. You, when you ask difficult questions and you are, have people's trust with their money and their donors and taxpayers, yeah, there's going to be tough questions, but you answer them. And this was their opportunity, and they've gone to ground. Charlie, let me play just a few seconds of what you've already heard because you were there. And this was Emmy Award-winning American journalist Reed Cowan, who is challenging the Kielbergers and We Charity because he raised a lot of money for we, and in return, as I understand it, his, his son's name, his son's passed away, and his son's name was going to appear on schools in Africa. When Mr. Cowan went to Africa, he did not see his son's name on any schools. Here's a bit of what Mr. Reed Cowan said to the Ethics Committee, the Parliamentary Ethics Committee, some of his testimony. We charities and Free the Children are embroiled in scandal, and that assurances made to donors are now in question feels like to me returning to my son's grave to find it broken open, defiled, and empty. It feels like the place that you thought was safe and secure for the body of your child has somehow been made unsafe, not secure, and standing there, you don't know exactly how it happened. You don't know exactly who did it, but you know something is not right. That sense of safety and security and solace is damaged, and the damage is done. That's how it feels to be here today devastating to hear that from a father yeah read uh, Cowan it was a very emotional time for him even to come forward but he said he felt he needed to come forward he needed to challenge other donors and I think the issue Roy is that we know that the Kielbergers have built schools we know they've done development work but they worked you know they worked with high high pressure high uh, fundraisers dealing with very wealthy people plus you know all kinds of ordinary groups and it was these promises that they were making. So when Reed Cowan was devastated over the death of his young son, you know, they said, build a school. We'll put his name on it. Um, he raised an enormous amount of money. He went around America uh, s- supporting this. And then he found out, well, then that school was renamed for someone else. And this is the pattern that appears. CBC has exposed this as well in terms of selling the same borehole drill multiple times. These are allegations CBC Fifth Estate has come up with. Bloomberg has these allegations. The Kielbergers say, oh, it's a mistake. Oh, you're wrong. We don't, you know, you're, you're not getting your facts right. Well, they had that opportunity to come to our committee on Monday to answer Reed Cowan. That's where they needed to come. He showed up at our committee. He made these devastating allegations. It's up to them to respond and reassure their donors. Because when you're in the business of raising money for development, you're in the business of transparency and accountability, and you need to be accountable. I don't know what they think, what their end game is by defying parliament on this, but uh, it's not looking good for them. And, and we know from what we're reading in the media and when I'm talking with journalists and people who've worked at WE, that a lot of people who gave money across Canada and the United States are saying, wait a minute, what's going on with these guys? Why is this scandal happening? 
we need questions answered and to that to defy parliament is uh, i just think a really reckless and irresponsible thing to do uh, charlie as i listened to you and as i watched your presentation before the ethics committee you talked a great deal about a major american effort to debunk the ethics committee and the work that the ethics committee is doing and the questions that are being asked what are your concerns what's going on well, Roy, one of the strange things with the Kielbergers, uh, you know, again, we're talking about a charity and a charity that works with kids. Um, they've, uh, from some of the filings we found, they hired an Israeli dis- disinformation team, apparently, to um, scrub some of the Wikipedia statements and to work online. Um, apparently, they hired a group uh, of Republicans out of, the, out of the Donald Trump school, Mark Rubio, to sort of take on media. And again, you're saying, well, what, what, what's with that if you're just a you know, feel-good charity? Uh, and when our committee was being filibustered and we were unable to do our work, suddenly these full-page ads appeared in Canadian uh, newspapers. There were editorials, all exonerating the Kielberger brothers, saying We Charity was great, saying these independent audits had completely exonerated them, and they were paid for by the Stillman Foundation. Uh, so I read those reports, and I mean, uh, they don't give us a picture of the the multitude of corporate interests and real estate holdings. They didn't really tell me a lot, but I was like, okay, who's the Stillman Foundation? Well, Roy, when Reed Cowan came forward to the Kielbergers with the allegations, when he learned that you know the this money that he had raised for his son, those plaques had been taken down, it was David Stillman who's connected to the Stillman family, the Stillman Foundation, who is the guy who was the point person to try and shut Reed Cowan down. Uh, and the Stillman family are the people, apparently, whose plaque was put up instead of Reed Cowan's son's plaque. So these are the people, you know, this foundation is putting out full-page ads in our Canadian papers telling us that there's nothing to see here. They work with the Kielbergers. They're involved in the scandal uh, with Reed Cowan. And this was being all done at a time when our committee was being filibustered. So it's like we need to get answers here, Roy. I'm getting fed up. Like this study has gone on way too long. We were in the final stages. We had prepared our report for Parliament. Now we've got another level of monkey wrenching to deal with. Uh, I don't know what the, the end game is. The Canadian people have a right to accountability. End of story. Do you believe that somehow the Liberal government and the Prime Minister is involved in, uh, in, in what you're objecting to? Because we, again, we remember that the prorogation of Parliament took place as the Ethics Committee was closing in on answers and wanted a great deal of, uh, of, of evidence, wanted a great deal of, uh, of, of uh, correspondence involving Mr. Trudeau and the Liberal Party about with, with We Charity. Do you think the PM's... The puppet master here? Well, I, I, what I think is clear from the testimony is that a lot of effort has gone gone into trying to obfuscate the role that Minister Bardish Chagger played. She played a key role in working with the Kielbergers and working with government and getting this, thing, this through this April 17th meeting, which nobody seems to want to talk about, which really was, I think, that the driver of pushing this forward. Um, she's been implicated. They've lost their finance minister, Bill Morneau. Um, this has well, been, they I didn't think, exactly lose him, Charlie. Well, they tried to pawn him off to the OECD. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, again, this guy, he was... His $41,000 in travel not covered. I mean, his relations with the Kielbergers were just so over the top. Um, 
I think at this point, the government would want this thing to go away, but I think it's gotten out from under them. And I think the allegations that are coming forward from the international sector is really, really damaging. My advice, if I was working for Navigator or any of these firms that are helping give them advice, was that they should have done this testimony months ago when we asked and tried to get it out of the way, take a hit and get it over with. I mean, again, uh, when you're asking for $912 million of taxpayers' money, you've got to assume that someone's going to ask you tough questions. And those tough questions weren't asked when this project was going ahead. If those tough questions were asked last April, these guys, I don't think, ever would have gotten the deal. Questions have to be asked. Now, the longer they drag it out, the more donors, the more other questions, the more things are coming forward. And it's now I think it's very corrosive for the prime minister. He should have let this thing just get dealt with, get the report to parliament, take the hit. But hey, that's that's their uh, that's their call. What question, if, what most fundamental question would you wish to put to the Kilberger brothers? You, Charlie Angus. Um, I think the issue of this insider access is enormously important. None of them were registered to lobby. Uh, Craig Kielberger reached out personally to Bill Morneau on April 11th about a $12 million deal. Uh, and 20, 11 days later, it seems to have been passed. Um, I want to know why they decided that they didn't have to follow the Lobbying Act because everybody follows the Lobbying Act. You know, any charity who does any small level of negotiations, yet none of them registered until this became a scandal. And yet Craig and Mark Kielberger, who have multiple relations with the senior government officials and all kinds of stuff, still haven't registered. So this question of illegal potential illegal lobbying is really, really serious. And I don't see why they were that reckless. I mean, they're a multi-million dollar organization. Why fudge it? Why not just play by the rules? And I think that's what's gotten them into trouble at every step of the way with their donors, uh, with government. When you're that kind of a charity, you, you're you accountable, you're transparent, and, you know, people might grumble about the group and how close they are to the Trudeaus, but hey, fair is fair. But, like, why fudge it? Why, why play games with this stuff? You have to be accountable, and I don't understand that from them. Okay, I literally have 20 seconds. You're calling for the RCMP and CRA to investigate Wee's operations. The Kielbergers communicate, as I understand it, they are, quote, happy to cooperate with any potential uh, investigation conducted by these agencies, end quote, but they fear the investigation would be partisan. Just a few seconds. Charlie, what do you say? Well, I mean, our democratic system is partisan. Um you know, enough of the sob story, guys. You worked with the prime minister, you worked with the liberals, you, you, you traveled, you brought them on your dime. That's partisan work. Um, and so you're accountable to parliament. Parliament is a democratic institution. You're accountable. You've got to show up. You've got to explain because it's taxpayers' money. Um, so if there's a police investigation or a CRA investigation, which we're not aware of, um, well, that'll be down the road. But right now, parliament needs to finish its work okay. and they need to testify. Jim to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. I'm there for my shot as soon as possible. And yes, I would show a vaccine passport. I have a question that I don't know has been asked and answered. Once you've had the vaccine, can you still carry and spread the virus? The question has been asked. I don't know that there's a definitive answer to this. Joining us on the program is Dr. Neil Rao, infectious diseases specialist in Ontario and assistant professor at the School of Medicine at the University of Toronto. We now have the Johnson & Johnson vaccine approved for use in Canada. Dr. Rao, can you start with that? How much of a significantly, uh, how much of a significant difference or impact does this additional vaccine make to the overall reality? Well, for the immediate reality, probably not much, but at least in the longer run as we roll out the vaccination programs, this is an excellent development. And also it's a single dose vaccine. 
which makes it easier for people. You don't have to book to have them come back three or four weeks later for another dose. And so people get better protection after one dose, although not immediately. All of these vaccines have the problem of not getting instant protection as certain other vaccines do. Uh, but there's a lot of brouhaha about the lack of immediate protection and lack of vaccine. But I think we have to anchor back to the fact that the disease rates are falling in all temperate countries of the world, whether or not vaccination rates are up. I'm not saying the vaccine isn't improving things for us in terms of outcomes, but we should focus on some of the other good news independent of the vaccine. Well, let's talk about some of that good news. We're told that there's going to be a significant increase and rapid increase in the numbers of vaccines that are entering this country. But at the same time, and maybe I don't know if this tempers the good news or not, but there's the news that we now in this country will, and I think Canada isn't the only jurisdiction, where the time frame between the administration of the first shot and the second one can be four months. So it becomes like the gestation period of an elephant. <laughs> that's, that's 22 months, not nine, like humans. But still, you're, you're getting into the issue of, it, you know, by the time you give people the vaccine, the disease trajectory for this round will likely be done, despite all of the talk about the variants or the scariants, as they're jokingly called, I affectionately call them that. I think we're still seeing a situation where we're going to be vaccinating people when disease rates are very low. And that brings us to the other question of, do we have to keep all of our restrictions or is there now, is it now timely to talk about lifting restrictions? We have 4 million people in Ontario still in lockdown and they will essentially continue to be in lockdown even tomorrow when they go into gray zone in Toronto and Peel region. Well, let's talk about that because I just did in the last half hour, I asked our listeners and callers across the country to let us know that if we got to the point where there's some agreed to herd immunity and the reality becomes that you can enter a public venue without a mask as long as you show proof of having been vaccinated. Would you do it? And the majority of people, and I'm seeing the emails rolling in, saying, yes, we would do it. But there is still concern about where we, how long will it take before we get to the point where we, there is consensus that we're at herd immunity. So a lot of issues to unpack there. First of all, how are you going to know that people are immune or aren't immune? Are you going to end up with a sort of a police state where people have to have proof uh, you know, like a dictatorship where they have to show proof. Do you get into civil liberties considerations that people still have a right to decide if something goes into their body, much as I encourage them to get the vaccine? Coercing people has a whole other legal side to it that has to be considered about our society. And then you get into the issue of the confusion of messaging. A can go in, B can't. How do you enforce it? Run it. So public health messaging sometimes becomes very simplistic. It becomes a horizontal interdiction. Nobody's allowed to do anything. That's not working very well. People are getting hostile. I get it. But another idea is to say people under a certain age, under age 60 especially, vaccine or not, you are safe to go to a larger venue and a larger gathering, including an outdoor sport gathering initially, and then ultimately the fabled hockey indoor gathering. And then saying to people who are over 60, we highly recommend, strongly recommend that you've had the vaccine before you march into these venues rather than having a coercive process where you're uh, asking people to show proof of something as if it's a passport to cross a border, the immunity passport model. I think there's a lot legally that needs to be unpacked. Even though medically it may sound lovely, we need to think about the other side of this. And I'm trying to think out of my medical box here. Okay. How have you, how has your your body responded to the fact that you've been vaccinated twice? Because well, I see the emails constantly. How do I know there's not going to be some sort of negative response from my physiology to being vaccinated. How's it turned out for you? So first one, I had a sore arm that lasted longer than I would have liked. Second one actually went better. But, you know, maybe I've actually had the disease already and maybe that's why I had a reaction. Unfortunately, we don't 
have the easy ability to say who has and has not had the disease. Even the antibody tests are inaccurate. And so fortunately, we haven't gone down the road of antibody passports and showing blood work, proof of blood work passports. That's another slippery slope we could go down. Um, I think, though, all of these vaccines are well tolerated in general. They aren't perfect, but the benefits outweigh the risks for most people who are getting them, especially if you're over 60, being offered this vaccine. And if you're under 60 with underlying disease, come one, come all, they should all get the vaccine. It's just that once we start making policies in terms of uh, allowances for people to have certain rights because they've had it, people who've had it can travel and not self-isolate when they come back, you're going to get into discussions about equitability and fairness. And I think that's going to be an ugly discussion. So maybe it's better to look at other things other than vaccination status and look at what's the status of the disease. What is the status of Canada versus other parts of the world with some of the disease incidents? Can we create travel bubbles instead of continuing along this game of quarantine hotels and self-isolation and test before you return? I think those are the things we should be talking about and having an adult discussion about. Those may have been politically very expedient things to do that, to distract from the vaccine delays, the rollouts, but I think it's time to really talk about whether we can also adjust some of those things and stop focusing on a permissive system based on vaccine or no vaccine. Quarantine hotels, what do you say? Ouch. I think it's the latest thing we've had since internment camps. It really, really bothers me. And the stories that bother me the most is that some of those people who are locked down in those quarantine hotels really can't afford it. They're of lower economic means, lesser means. It's the Filipino nanny it's the Jamaican migrant farm worker who wants to go home to see a relative who came here to find economic prosperity, but who also wanted to have connections from abroad. We are a country where a lot of us have connections abroad. I'm a child of first, of, of first generation. I'm a first generation immigrant, so I'm a child of immigrants. Um, in my era growing up, people didn't go back and forth to the countries of origin or, or ethnic origin, but now it's commonplace, aviation's big, people fly back and forth all the time. To cut people off from that who are of lesser means really bothers me. And there are even horrible stories of abuse and people being gouged and yeah. hotels getting in on the, on, on the racket. I think the government could, at least could have had a fixed price if they were going to do it, and they should have thought about how they're going to get out of it. It should have really been a temporary measure, and there's no end in sight. I don't see any discussion about stopping it. It seems politically expedient. We're copying Australia. Australia is a country that has an island for illegal immigrants, which has also been criticized by Amnesty International. Like This is no paragon of virtue to follow. And we have entered the bottom. We have raced to the bottom. As a country, we need to ask ourselves, do some soul searching. Why are we doing this? Okay, so now we have, moving along, we have these different vaccines. We have now, we've, you know, the Oxford AstraZeneca has been said not to be recommended for those 65 years of age and older. We now have Johnson & Johnson coming into the picture. And that makes my uh, listener Jim's email, I think, more relevant again because he asks, with all of these vaccines in play, his question is, uh, once you've had the vaccine, can you still carry and spread the virus? How do you answer that question with so many players? So we don't know for each of them, but I think after a while, this becomes a moot discussion. Because if you're protected from a bad outcome, and if enough people are protected from a bad outcome, as one of my colleagues said, who the heck cares whether the virus is spreading or not? You've got a, the shots on net don't score. Who cares if the puck's out on the ice? use my favorite hockey analogy all right the other thing is we've got this perception there is an air canada first and an air canada rouge of vaccines based on the numbers that keep getting bandied about and that's too bad because when it comes to the end point of preventing hospital admission icu admission and death they are all really similar they still get you across the ocean you know 
And the side effect profiles may be different between them. Hard to compare. There haven't been head-to-head comparisons. But this is an emergency. So with haste, those who need it should get it. And beggars can't be choosers, so to speak. I think people should just get what they are offered. J&J vaccine has the bonus of being a single doser. But don't sit around and wait for this Air Canada first class one to come through. Because maybe Rouge will get you across the pond anyway. Okay. Now this one. This, this, This wraps it up. What are you optimistic about? And what are you not optimistic about? about where we are on the 6th of March. I'm concerned about how mainstream media continues to peddle fear. I think that the obsession with case counts, even taking yesterday as an example, in Ontario or in Toronto, they counted the number of daily cases, but they never acknowledged that the percent of positives didn't actually go up. So if more people get tested, you get more positives. So the numbers go up in that sense, but the percent didn't change. We keep talking about daily case counts. The eye on the prize is what's happening with the healthcare system. Is the healthcare system being overwhelmed? It is roundly not being overwhelmed. Nowhere in Canada is it being overwhelmed. And yet we keep talking about daily case counts as if it's the stock market. So that's the first discussion that has to change. The other one is the scariant discussion, the variants. Variants, instead of adding to COVID Classic, are replacing COVID Classic. And yet the numbers are falling. Why do we not tell the news story through the prism of an optimistic story? And if we don't switch to a more optimistic message, we will have more justification for restrictive policies and an inability to get out of them. The reason Toronto has gone into gray zone rather than the red zone, which is a bit more permissive, is because they kept the lockdown going too long. You have to save face by going into gray zone. You can't suddenly say abracadabra, everything's great now after being so restrictive. So you have to phase out slowly. It's a face-saving gesture, and we need to stop that in Ontario and Quebec, especially the curfews are another example, some that have not really been a good return on investment. And we have to really get out of that. And if we keep talking about variants, we're never going to get out of it. And people are already depressed. People are already feeling tremendous stress and pressure. So if you don't provide some level of positive messaging, all you're doing is reinforcing what the problem is. Above them, the you have COVID. people walking around with masks, masks, masks are being worn outdoors everywhere. You have people believing that the virus spreads outdoors. That message has to change. People think that environmental surfaces are contaminated and they're disinfecting everything, left, right, and center. Cleanliness is next to godliness, but it has nothing to do with COVID. There are a huge number of things that are being done that we could actually back down on. We have physical distancing in public bathrooms where they block off every other toilet stall. I mean, it's just, it's reached the level of the absurd. It's, it's, I mean, we're, go- we're going to have COVID theater a year or two from now, looking back on this. I've seen hiking trails that were unidirectional in Quebec in the summer. <laughs> what? Well, what? There's a sign saying, go, go up the hill this way and descend the other way. It was a loop trail. They didn't want people <laughs> passing by each other. Yes, I have oh, pictures. I, I have a scrapbook. I'm keeping one. Send me a picture. <laughs> I'll post it to Twitter. <laughs> you might. I, <laughs> I will. I definitely will. <laughs> it's always good talking to you, Dr. Rao. Thanks for the time. Okay. Bye. Dr. Neil Rao, infectious diseases specialist in Ontario. He's also an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.